Welcome to a conversation of change with Dr. Jen Fram, where we talk all things leadership, change, and transformation. Hello, everybody. It's Dr. Jen Fram from Conversations of Change. You might hear that I'm feeling quite energized today, and it's uh, it's funny. I actually have a guest with you. I know that you have been thoroughly enjoying my solo flying for the last couple of weeks. But as I said to my guest earlier, I'm getting a little bit bored with myself um, and I feel like I need some company. And lo and behold, I saw that it was the International uh, Coaching Week and I thought, what an awesome topic to bring you this week. A bit of a conversation around the space of coaching, change, transformation and leadership. So it's my great joy to introduce you to Liam Brobst, who is a independent consultant, um, excels in the area of service delivery, agile. I've seen him in action. He's one of, you know, the truly impressive coaches that are out there. Liam, welcome to Conversations of Change. Jen, thank you so much. That is a very generous introduction. And, and thanks for uh, inviting me to your conversation. Ah, oh, it's my pleasure. It's my pleasure. Let me just check in. How are you going in this COVID-19 world? What's happening in your world? Looks, looks surprisingly well, actually. Um, if I think about how I'm going, um, I think about the things that are really close to me, you know, my, my family, my home, and those sort of concentric circles of concern, my community and friends. And, and if I think how that's going, it's all actually fairly good, I have to say. And I do feel a little bit guilty about it. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, look, and I think that's that's something uh, I've we've spoken before on the last couple of episodes about the global energy shifts that are happening as people process what this forced change means to them. And I do feel that we are the conversations I've been having this week start to reflect: is it actually okay to feel I'm okay? And you know that sensitivity to others are not, but actually I'm really liking this now. There's a lot of things we've had to be able to let go of which I'm grateful for. And that brings about attention for people, you know? Yeah, it's a, uh, it, it's a survivor's guilt type, you know, spectrum of feeling. Um, but for me, I, I live on two and a half acres out in the Dandenong Ranges. So I've got plenty of trees to cut up. I got uh, two rambunctious dogs that need a lot of attention um, yeah. and, uh, and an old fifties weatherboard house. So there's always good stuff to keep me busy if it's not work. And I think that's actually quite a big, uh, quite a big part of why I'm okay. That and, um, I've got a lot of toilet paper and whiskey on hand, so. <laughs> always good, always good. Okay, so this is the International Coaching Week um, and I thought it would be really useful to explore coaching a little bit deeper. Um, for me, coaching is a really strong modality in how we achieve transformation of organisations. Can you tell me a little bit about your career path in terms of you know, how you came to do what you do now and, you know, how is it that you've built up your skill set in the coaching domain? Yeah, absolutely, Jen. So it's like a, um, I'm a 42-year-old dude, so wrapping up, you know, 20 years into two minutes is kind of like this. A, um, a curious dude who is uh, interested in commercial success, like I, I do not shy away from, uh, from the commercial benefit of our work and the capitalist society, which we found ourselves in and kind of working with that. So the first years were basically tech company business growth, make spreadsheets go up and to the right and, uh, and keep everybody happy. Um, 
10 years later, I started getting curious about why are people buying this stuff in the first place? Uh, and then I got curious about doing research and um, studied a little bit of uh, a little bit of research, nothing formally, and then started spending more time with customers. Then I was like, well, if you had these insights from customers, um, particularly I had a government agency, I did some work with that 10 years ago, and that was the insight moment for me was if you hung out with people who were deriving value from the service, you'd have amazing insights. But then how do you execute? And that's where this, the agile sort of stuff started coming into play. So I worked for um, ThoughtWorks, uh, was really a pivotal point in my career eight years ago, um, where I learned a lot from the people that I worked with there, um, and good and bad. Um, and then I took a lot of that uh, and then went freelance five years and 10 months ago um, so that I could help clients um, completely independent and, and with their best interests at heart. Since then, Jen, it's just been a constant loop of learning and experimenting on my clients. <laughs> that, that's probably, um, I, was, I was kind of thinking, continuous loop of learning and experimenting on your clients. That's done with the most kindest of intent, surely. <laughs> Always. Right, so you're, not, you're not coming in as Liam the mad scientist. No, well, um, mad scientists or individual geniuses or people that run too far ahead of the pack that they're with aren't helpful. Mm -hmm. It's like, it, it's just, if, if you're going to be that, well, go be that. That's just not me. I, I connect to groups of people that are somewhere and they want to change that somewhere or change where they are to be a little bit better. And that's really the modulation, right? Is um, if I can go and learn um, a, a method of prioritization or a method of uh, emergent strategy design, if I go learn something or, or like Dave Snowden stuff that can have in you know, complexity theory stuff, right? I'll learn a little bit from that. But if I rock up to a client and start experimenting with these different models, they're, they're way too weird for most of my clients. So I take a thin slice that's helpful just ahead of them, connect the two and off we go. Lovely, lovely. How do, how do leaders, if we think about leadership teams and, you know, we perhaps narrow that down into the space of agile coaching and particularly organisations who bring in agile coaches, how do you see that leaders best use that role? So it depends on why they brought the coach in in the first place. And in my experience, if they've brought the coach in because they genuinely have a, a deep why or a deep purpose for why they want to change. And I think about um, a client of mine in public health who needed to change the emergency department triage. You know, it's, it's a very deep why. And, and the best way to use a coach there is to bring them in to socialize a new way of doing things at leadership levels. That's, that's the big part of it. And then to demonstrate value of those new ways in small iterative loops. So how do I demonstrate value? How do I get the right to play, to get invited back to dinner every fortnight? Like, how do I do that um, in, in short, amount, short amounts of time, like fortnightly or monthly, something like that? Mm. Uh, that's where I prefer to work. However, um, there is also a case for if you're a leader in an organization and you want to introduce an agile coach, um, there, there is a case for not the execution, but just the socializing of something new. Mm -hmm. And I've seen executives do this really well. They won't do it with me though. Um, and the reason is because uh, I don't carry a brand. Yeah. So this, I've seen smart executives bring in a, a branded consultancy who can't execute to be frank, but they will give you um, credibility at a board level. They have the right logo on the card and, and presentation and so on. And that's a smart move too, because then you're buying either budget or permission or time 
to do the execution of agile practices within your company. Mm. So those are the two paths that yeah. I Yeah. What what do you think makes for a really good coach? What how do we differentiate a good coach from one who perhaps is not? There's um it, it's a modulation in my opinion. It's a, it's a dance, you know, it's an art. It's a throttle control, a back and forth. It, it's something like that. Those are the best coaches because they understand that. And I'm talking about myself too. I hope when, I, when I'm, when I'm at my best anyway, is that we understand that we need to be compassionate and, and empathetic with our customer in their position, but also we need to lead as well. So we need to be just ahead, but not so far ahead that you can't connect. Mm. We need to empathize, but not all the time. Sometimes you need to be rational about your empathy as well. Um, sometimes we need to talk about big abstract concepts and we need to communicate in abstractions, mm. but not always. Sometimes we need to actually talk about how do I create a team and how many people are in the team, something tactical like that. You know, five, that's a good number for a team. Um, so to be able to, to oscillate or modulate whatever word that has more than three syllables that you're impressed with uh, that helps you move in that space. I think those are the best coaches. Um, the second thing I'd throw in there, and um, this is more a criticism of what makes a poor coach is one who is stuck on an ideology. Mm. Um, this is the way agile is done. This is what th that Bible says, or this book or this certification or this framework or whatever uh, ideological um, positions um, don't allow room for other truths, including mm. your customer's truth. So there's a, a two-sided answer. Yeah, yeah. Because like when I think about it, I I think about when I'm at my best coaching, I am empowering and encouraging people to do things differently, but I'm close enough to pull the chain at the last minute if it looks like they're going over the cliff, you know. So it's that toggle between permission and expansiveness and flexibility and enough control and risk management yeah. to go, actually, let's just come back from that. Does that work in your world, in your model of coaching, or how does that yeah. fit in? Yeah, totally, Jen. I, I absolutely relate to that because um, it also works in other areas of my life as well. So um, uh, as a, I'm a volunteer uh, firefighter within the CFA and in leadership position in our brigade, when we when we have new members, we want to give – there's there's really nice spectrum of – giving people authority and giving them that, that, that uh, to use the metaphor, that chain or that distance, right? But you have to do it within the confines of their competency. Mm. It, it's, it's irresponsible to encourage somebody or let, let somebody um, go way past their own competency. That's just dangerous. And it's not helpful for them either. And so understanding where, that, that where, to, where to pull out that card, you know, or what to call that out. Um, yep. It is really quite helpful. And sometimes I get it wrong. Um, and sometimes um, I go too far one way or too far the other. Uh, but that's the art, right? Yeah, it is. It is. Um, I think the, the other thing that I get asked a lot about is what is the difference between coaching and mentoring? Do you have a distinction between the two? Yeah, and I'm totally going to throw this question back at you in a minute, so prepare yourself. Yeah, okay, right, good. <laughs> um, so my take on it, and I hadn't thought about it before, uh, before you just asked. Um, so I'm going to go with the gut reaction, which is, um, for me, mentorship implies a, a more intimate relationship um, and also implies a, a positioning, which is where you are, you're almost always 
guiding the individual um, towards what what better might look like or making better quality decisions um, or something to that effect. So if I think about when uh, when I'm mentoring individuals, it's always an individual. Um, when I think about those conversations that I have with my mentee, um, I think about I'm very conscious about the dynamic that as the mentor, you are in a, a, a position of leadership or a position of authority. And, and that's almost constant. In, in a coaching role, um, for whatever reason, my brain says uh, that's a little bit more around um, the individual's interactions within the context of a group. It's more group than individual. Uh, it's probably less intimate um, as in personally, you know, a personal intimacy or, or personal issues. It's probably a little bit uh, not quite as deep. Um, and the other thing that comes to mind when I think about coaching um, is it's a little bit more on the sidelines. And so if I think about positioning, it's almost like you're sometimes ahead, sometimes you're right next to them, sometimes you're behind them. Mm. Um, sorry, that's a little bit abstract, but I'm actually mm. thinking right now of a coach on the side of a sports field. Yeah. And in the other, I'm actually thinking about a guide who's walking along a path with somebody behind them. Mm. Mm. All right. Now, over to you. What, what are your thoughts on coaching versus mentorship? Because I just made all that up. I don't know if any of Yeah. <laughs> I think there's some real similarities there in your answer. So I, I tend to see it as a differentiator of push and pull. So similar to you, I, you know, when they have the, the programs, mentoring programs, and they match you up with a mentee and all that kind of stuff, I've never found that that has worked for me in either space, the mentor or the mentee. There's a, um artificialness of it that doesn't work. But I know that I have mentored a lot of people that I have worked with directly and closely. So that intimacy, that that it's someone that I see repeatedly. Um, and I think so for me, mentoring has a, a, a status hierarchy kind of concept attached to it that I... When I mentor, I provide information. So I push, that's the push side of it. No, I'm, I'm giving you information as we go based on what you're doing and how you're doing it. Whereas coaching for me is often a little bit more removed and it's the pull. So rather than provide the answers, I'm asking the questions that help the person I'm coaching come up with their answers, you know, and providing feedback around that. So I think it's kind of similar to what you said, but just a little bit different. I know I just, because someone asked me the other day, um, was I open to mentoring? And I, I had this, it was someone in another city completely. And I was like, oh, no, no, I'm not. I'm not open to yeah. it because I actually have to work really closely with you to be an effective mentor. Other, I just, otherwise, I get really disengaged from the process, you know, yeah. um, and that's not helpful for either party. Is that because, is that related to the intimacy? Is that kind of along the same lines, that there's something there? Well, I think it's also attentiveness, um, being able to give really useful feedback on how someone is going, that if mm. you're not working closely with them, you can't see that. Whereas as a coach, that's about building capability and confidence. Yeah. And so the, the role of a coach for me, if I think about leadership coaching and executive coaching, it's about building change capability um, but in confidence in leading transformation in a different way. Um, and you can't build capability and confidence by somebody just talking at you with their wisdom. Well, <laughs> well maybe I mean, you, you could. <laughs> like if you could, you, you'd, like, you'd go buy a book. You wouldn't hire me, right? Yeah. 
Yeah. So I often think about that too. And I think about if people want to hire me to do some agile coaching at a leadership level, and then we start having conversations about how do I, what is agile or, or just things that they can learn from Google. I kind of think, well, like, why am I here? <laughs> There's got to be more to it than that, right? And there usually is, but uh, yeah. I need to pull that out. I'll tell you one thing that's common for me, um, although I feel like that's a bit of wordplay, coaching and mentorship, in, in my mind. I'm not saying it is universally, but for me it is, uh, is, is that when you assume, when you take that position, you take responsibility. That for me is a real big thing, um, is to take responsibility in your role of coaching, especially at leadership levels, because the direction that we give, the advice, the help, um, impacts not just the leader, but also the the people around that leader as well. Yeah, there's a flow on effect. Absolutely, yeah. And I take that very seriously because you can do um, a tremendous amount of good and equally damage as well. And and but either way, um, we owe it to our clients to not bail on them. Mm. And that's the responsibility piece. I am responsible. I take responsibility for the outcome. Yeah. Um, alongside. No, I don't know if that's right or wrong. It's just how I choose to do it. Uh, gotcha. Gotcha. Yeah. Liam, tell me, um, your experience working with change practitioners in these organisations, so I guess I'm distinguishing a difference between agile practitioners and change management practitioners here. Which I think is right, by the way. But yeah. yeah. What's What's your take on that in terms of what is what is the optimum relationship between change management practitioners and agile practitioners? So in my experience, and I've worked across organizations um, like yourself uh, in, in diverse contexts from mostly in the enterprise space, right? Large global software companies, you know, energy retailers, healthcare providers, and so on. Um, and and so in, in a lot of these organizations that I've seen where you see the inter- interaction between an agile coach uh, and say a change manager, um, Here's my experience. At the leadership level, anyway, um, they've both been brought in or invited in to this group of people because something's not working and um, and we're going to change. And, and look, I'll, I'll be honest with you also, too. Some clients that I work with, about 30% don't really want the change. They want the theater. So you got to smell that out real quick, right? You just want, you know, agile theatrics. Cool. We'll put post-it notes on the wall change will be relegated to comms, pushing out EDMs or whatever they do. And then, you know, we're done. Um, but if, if you want actual change, which is um, <laughs> much more fun, much more difficult. Um, the interaction I've seen is that, uh, is that the leadership has done a poor job of being clear about what the roles are and what the boundaries are. So here's my agile coach, here's my change manager. Um, and, and here's my BA and my product and like lots of people uh, seem to take on the mantle of their driving the change. I set the agenda. Nah, da, 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 da. So I think that's actually a, a, the leadership's responsibility to say, this is your role and this is your role and how you work together. Um, most of the organizations I've worked in when I've come across um, change management uh, professionals, um, they've been relegated to comms. Mm-hmm. Um, they've been left out of meetings. They've been neglected and they're on an island over there wondering when someone will ask them to create a email or something like that. Right. And it shits me to tears. It really does. And I'm not like, I'm not even like a change manager or an advocate for the profession. It's just, you brought a, a talented individual in who can add a lot more value and then you failed to extract the value. And by the way, agile coaches will complain of something similar, but it's <laughs> different. It's different. Um, so that's, that's been my, my experience. And here's the opportunity. The opportunity is, if you allow change management professionals, and this is where I think you should, where clients are best to do it, 
how do I take strategy, connect it to execution? And let's just say we're talking about redesign of an operating model because I do a lot of that work. Um, where in this situation does the change manager help with transition planning? I love transition planning because it's such an obvious, easy problem to point at, not to fix, but to point at. Uh, and at the leadership level, when I ask them, great, so um, can you show me the transition plans for all the individuals that you're about to change their world? And then, you know, uh, you know, uh, and then that's the opportunity to introduce change management. Um, I might double down on that too. And I'm talking out of school because I don't understand change management as well as I should. But I also think that there's a missed opportunity for social scientists as well in the in these transformation programs or in these change programs. Um, I often ask too, so where's your, do you have a behavior psychologist? Do you have, I know they don't, I'm just being facetious, but um, that's the missed opportunity. And uh, now I'm going to have a go at change managers. So prepare yourselves. Yeah. Um, when, when I, when I see this and I lament and I cry and, and I buy them coffee and listen to the stories. Um, I also think change managers as do agile coaches um, have a responsibility to make themselves heard, make their value proposition clear. And if they can't execute to threaten to leave and leave, like don't waste your own time. Yeah, That's, that's I, me having a go. Well, I think that was a pretty kind having a go. I think the only thing I would pick up on is I think if you bring change management, um, let's just call it expertise or change management knowledge, regardless of what role that is, way back in the beginning when you first started talking about strategy to execution, you're going to have a design that is so much easier to create a transition plan for. So you invest up front, you reduce the cost of implementation considerably. And what happens is that often leaders will, with whichever consultants they're working with, come up with the design of what this transformation is going to be without the input of change practitioners who often are behavioural psychologists. Yep. Which means they get thrown over the fence. Here's our strategy implementation. This is what yes. we're going to do. Now create a transition plan. Right, right. And you're going, actually, I can't transition this. There's no change management fairy dust that we can just spread over this and make it a good thing. You know? Absolutely. Yeah. Do you so, know who else complains about that? And rightly so. Um, you know who else complains about that? Is risk, compliance, and governance people. Always, right? So whenever, like, if we're on service design, when we're doing redesign of new services, yeah, um, I try to bring those people in at concept stage so yeah. early. But execs um, who are funding work often don't like doing that. They basically, will, I, I, they is so strong of a word, and, and I apologize <laughs> for being so broad, but, oh, oh well, here we go. Um, yeah. the, those people often get left to the very end and say, please, magic fair dust this up or just nod your head in the right direction, you know, tell me the words I want to hear. And then um, the individual has actually wasted their investment. Mm -hmm. Here's a plug for Agile. <laughs> now that I, I just thought of it. If we drive towards execution, which is strategy to execution connection or prototyping or whatever it is you're doing, if you're trying to drive that towards small, short loops, mm -hmm. you force the conversation much earlier around change management or compliance or risk or whatever it might be because you have to complete the loop all the way to customer value and that forces that conversation oh, rather absolutely. than, you know, six months later. We bring That's it. what I love about it. Agile de-risks. Right. You know, all the time. If we if we actually are true to, to what it's about, we're de-risking what could be a very expensive transformation program. 
So, you know, I, I often, when people ask me to explain what change management is, I often describe it in terms of it is risk management. Yep. You know, we either look at it as risk management or, um, you know, creativity on steroids because we're reimagining what the world could be. But, you know, because I don't want to... I don't want to diminish it to just risk management. You know, there is clearly degenerative, constructive creation that is creating change element of it. But a big part of it for me is always risk mitigation, you know. Yeah, yeah. No, I see that in my work as well. And inclusion. So when we do co-design, um, change management can really play a part in that as well. However, I think the brand of change management has, has, got, a, has, has got some debt on it, just from, from an outsider's point of view. Yeah. In, in organizations, I, I think it's got some debt and it almost needs to be rebranded. Uh, anyway, that's an, another podcast, I'm sure. That's another podcast, absolutely. <laughs> um, Liam, tell me, what surprises you about coaching after all these years? Um, I, I don't, so, so I should, let me, let, let me give you a disclaimer as to these words I'm about to use. Um, I don't have any professional qualifications in um, cognitive science or social sciences, so apologies for the the caveman language here but what surprises me um is how people can lie to themselves like and i'm sure there's better words for that but how is it that it, it, and you often see it when it's the us them right hey please come in and change those people like, i'm fine right in the leadership role right so these people aren't, aren't executing right or whatever it might be um and then I, what i try to do is through visual management and other such tools or, or practices I tried to show the dissonance between what we said we were here for, like a purpose, and then what we use as measures and signals to know for achieving that purpose. Mm-hmm. Um, that's just a, it's a really nice place to show the, the dissonance. And then sometimes when you show it, it still doesn't land. Yeah. And it, I don't know what that word is. And I would, somebody smarter, I'm sure you know more about this, but how is it that people can say, one thing behave in another way and then even when shown the mirror refuse to see like that i find that fascinating and and i must do it myself right but i can't you know i can't analyze myself so i can't figure that out but i find that that surprises me still how we do that and i guess the other the other question that comes to mind off that is after all the years you've been doing this what would you most wish that leaders would know or do? Oh, that's such an unfair question, Jen. Just yeah. the what? <laughs> um, the most. Okay, so here it is. Um, boy, sorry, I have two two, two thoughts are, are fighting for my one mouth. That's um, okay. Roll them out like, one at a time. All right, I'll give, I'll give you two. The, the first is to is to accept that we we are living in a in a, a human centered situation. Um, so I bring some humanity into it would be, would be bloody helpful. Right. But the other one, and the one that's actually probably bigger than that is the idea that you need, and this is perhaps a little bit paradoxical, but the answers are within the organization. You do not need to go to Toyota to follow lean. You do not need to follow Spotify, which by the way, isn't even a model anyway. Right. You don't need to go to some, and I'll pick on safe. I don't, I don't mean to, but it doesn't really matter, but you don't need to go out to, some massive program of work that will give you certification and all the answers as though there's a wise elder outside of your village. You know, it's like you just don't need it. Um, and in fact, it's often unhelpful. Agile as a word is loaded now, right? If I rock up and say, hey, let's talk Agile, I'm just as likely to get a rock thrown at me as I am to be praised. 
So there's something around having confidence that the answers are within your organization and that, yes, you might need some help eliciting them or creating some breathing room for those to come out. Um, but that, that would be it. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> there's wisdom in that. There's wisdom in that. For this I, stuff. I appreciate it. I appreciate it. Hey, tell me, are you up for a little bit of word association? Uh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Go for it. Yeah. Okay. Sorry, the the uh the uh pause on that was um reminded me of the last time I played this game uh, at improv class. Uh yeah, and it went uh hippie penis and that was kind of a very unusual association. This uh, that was is, me by the way. Yeah, okay. No, this is going to be uh considerably <laughs> tamer than the last time you did it, right? All right, cool. So one of the things I'm always interested in are the qualities that make for really, really good change leadership. And for me, they break down to five qualities. First is I'd like to, I'm going to say, I'm going to give you the word and then you tell me what it brings to mind for you um, in a little bit more of a tamer version than you might do in your improv class. So I'll try to behave. Okay, good. Curiosity. Uh, dangerous. Um, do you want me to elaborate? Or we just yeah, do words? go for it. Yeah. It's, up to, it's your game. It's up to you. <laughs> elaborate. Okay, cool. Um, you want to be smart. If you're going to be curious, and I'm a super curious dude, but you want to be smart about it. You want to understand what rocks you're lifting up and what's underneath them. And also how far you're going to be curious. If you're going to be curious for six months and not deliver any value, that's probably not very smart. But a lot of consultants, a lot of agencies do that. I, I've been hired three times now by organizations that have spent a lot of money with an agency where they pay for curiosity work uh, and they didn't have anything that they could action. The research work was good, but nobody closed it off and said, now do something and then get curious again later. I, I, I love that answer. That's just, oh, let's keep going. This is fun. Okay. Second quality, empathy. Uh, rational. Um, empathy empathy is, is essential, uh, but we want to be rational with it too. I think we, if, if empathy is, if my understanding of empathy is right, which is that we, we effectively take on the feelings and the experiences of other humans, right? As opposed to say sympathy, right? Where I understand it. Um, that's bloody exhausting. So if you're really going to be empath, you know, apply empathy or be empathetic, if that's the right word uh, to people, be rational about it. Pick, pick a small group, you know, or just go so deep and then stop. Take a breather, look after yourself and then do it again. Okay. Vulnerability. Um, privilege. Privilege is the first word that just bumped in my head. Um, so, so in, in, um, in, in privilege, what I mean by that is to be vulnerable and to talk about vulnerability, you're probably, and, and to talk about it safely as though it's a virtue. It means that you, you're unlikely to actually be injured in your vulnerability. Like actual vulnerability is frightening and, and it can be bloody scary. Right. Mm -hmm. And so it's a privilege often when I see leaders talk about, I'm going to be vulnerable here because they're usually being vulnerable with subordinates in the organization, mm -hmm. um, which is easier because they're not going to fire you or yell at you. So show me vulnerability up or out where you're genuinely being vulnerable, which is the, you run the risk. You're teetering, you know, that chair is you're leaning back and it's about to fall over like right there. That that's, that's vulnerable to me, not not the position of privilege vulnerability. Courage. Oh, forward, easy. Uh, courage for me is 
if you're going to do something new, if you're going to change, and particularly as leaders, I think it's your job to show courage. <laughs> that was a bit strong. Um, but the reason is, if you're going to change and, and do, you know, whether it's agile or, or, or whatever it is, it doesn't really matter, but you can do something different. Basically, what you're doing is you're taking a step outside your village into the dark forest. Like, you've got to go there because that's where the good stuff is. But it takes courage to take the step. Be smart about it. But if you don't have courage and you have fear, you end, here's an opinion, <laughs> uh, you end up um, in a village, in your group, never looking out because you're scared. And if you're scared, you're not going to grow. So I think you have to step. So forward was the word, by the way. And it was about stepping forward courageously. It's not easy. No, it's not. Speaking of not easy, self-compassion. Jen, this is like uh, hard, by the way, is, is, the, is the word. Uh, self-compassion is hard. And Jen, it's, it's hard for me personally because I'm, I'm, I'm stoic. Um, I believe in self-responsibility. Um, I am brutal on that stuff with myself and self-compassion, right? It's really hard for me to say that's good enough. Like, it generally, it's, it's, and it's just because I have a value system uh, through a story of, uh, of, I won't bore you with my narrative, but basically you're looking at an individual who grew up on self-reliance in what was what was perceived as a dangerous world and then how do i t how do i make right by myself um and then that's that narrative is informs my values and my values therefore are something like um i take uh, maximum responsibility so it's bloody hard for me to pat myself on the back and have a day off you know what i mean like that stuff letting myself off the hook impossibly hard for me Sometimes I just pretend so that my wife doesn't, uh, wife doesn't give any shit and tell me to relax on the couch. You know? Yeah, I am. But really, I'm not. <laughs> so hard. Oh, I appreciate that. Liam, you've been incredibly generous with your time and your thoughts. How can the listeners help you? What would you ask of them? Jen, thank you for giving me the chance uh, to answer this. Uh, I do not have a, a movie to pitch or uh, a book to um, what I would ask is if you found any of this stuff interesting uh, or you want to talk about it or, or even argue against it or inform me better because I don't know what I'm doing, uh, reach out. I'm Liam Brobst, B-R-O-B-S-T. Sorry, it's a German word during the great vowel shortage of the 18th century. Um, reach out to Jen, either of us, and keep these conversations going because th that's cool stuff. That's fantastic. Well, as someone else with a German surname that very few people get to pronounce right, uh, I'm totally with you there. It's You're in safe hands. Liam, thanks so much for joining us on this conversation of change. Thank you, Jen. It was a pleasure. You've been listening to A Conversation of Change with Dr. Jen Fram. You can find many more resources on leading change at my website, drjenfram.com. I welcome feedback on what else you'd like to hear on the podcast. Why not connect with me on Twitter at Jen Fram or LinkedIn? 